When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. Thank you for downloading the podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking about Revolut launching mobile wallets to support international transfers. We talked about how interesting it is that Revolut is um, partnering with networks in Bangladesh and Kenya to make it easier for people to transfer money between initially Europe and uh, those two countries. Super interesting. We are talking about the Financial Stability Board recommending new measures to prevent bank runs. And we talked about whether social media are causing bank runs or merely accelerating them. And what, if anything, managers of banks can do to try and avoid a run on their banks. And a retired teacher's pension was stopped as the provider refused to believe she wasn't dead four times. And we talked about what happens when you have badly written software and computer says no, and said thank you to all the great developers who write good software that actually thinks through what is the likely customer scenario and how do we avoid creating awful situations like that. So we get into all of this and much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to episode 821 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensel, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three guests who are here to break down the week's biggest news stories in fintech and financial services. So firstly, a big hello to my co-host, Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director at 11FS. How are you doing, Ross? I'm doing great, Benjamin. It's great to be here. It's always great to be on the show with you. And we have a very late substitute. Um, one of our guests was unfortunately unable to join us in the way that she had originally planned, but we have an equally good, outstanding colleague, Rachel Panjan, Ventures Product Lead at 11FS. Thank you for stepping in. How are you doing, apart from being slightly <laughs> nervous? Um, I am panicked reading all the stories that we have on today. No, um, I'm really excited to be here and just coming off the back of one of our first in-person town halls in our new office uh, space, which is, is really nice. We've got some good stuff going on and good vibes in the office today. We have got uh, lots of exciting things going on. We're also delighted to welcome back Amelia Isaacs, freelance journalist and former senior reporter at Altfi. Hello, Amelia. It's great to have you back on the show. Please tell our listeners a little bit more about you and what you do. Hello, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, I am a reporter and journalist. I cover all things uh, finance and fintech, so everything under that big and broad umbrella. Um, and I'm very happy to be here today. So thank you for having me. Well, welcome back to the show. And with that, let's jump into the news. Now, we're quite used to commenting on everyone else's news, but the last week's been a little bit more exciting for 11FS. We've been making couple of small headlines of our own following the announcement of 11FS VC, our new venture firm and accelerator program. We're excited to confirm Jamie Campbell, former founder of Fronted, is joining us to head 11FS VC and in his words, create the best financial services startup incubator in the world. 
We'll have lots more details for you in the coming weeks and months, so keep your eyes peeled, and a huge welcome to Jamie from all of us at 11FS. Exciting times ahead. Okay, so now for the news. Our first story this week is that Revolut has expanded its international transfer capability with the launch of mobile wallets. The new mobile wallets will feature will let Revolut customers send money abroad easily without the need to input bank details. Revolut customers in the UK and most European countries can now send money to Bangladesh and Kenya, with other wallet routes expected to be launched soon. Payments can be made to other countries directly through the app, um, which can particularly benefit expats or students studying abroad, according to Revolut. And Revolut processes over 500 million payments a month from its 35 million strong customer base and hopes mobile wallets will support its continued growth. Amelia, you reported on this story. Um, I'd love you to tell us a little bit more. What does this actually mean? Yeah, so in a way, it's kind of going back to basics in a modern way for Revolut. Of, you know, they started with payments and they started with international payments. So it's kind of harkening back to their roots in a, in a new way for them. Um, so mobile wallets, especially in the countries that they're specifically going to, so Kenya and other African countries and Bangladesh, um, is, is huge. That's sort of the primary primary method of payment. So it's huge for their customer base there and for customers who are outside of the countries wanting to send money there. So the countries that they're specifically going to are M-Pesa in Kenya and Bcash in Bangladesh. So those both have huge, huge customer bases. I think M-Pesa is like more than 56 million across seven African countries and Bcash is more than 70 million. So Revolut already pretty huge at 35 million customers, but they're on a whole nother level. So it opens up a big uh, market for them in terms of transfers to there. Um, and it's another frictionless or even less friction based um, method of transfer for them. And, and just to make sure I understand, Revolut is partnering with those companies so, so that it can, Revolut customers can send money to people in those networks or do you, do you mean it was competing with them? So I think it's both. Right. <laughs> um, from what I can tell, in that they're 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 doing those wallet routes, but then also you've got to think that they're wanting to try and compete, although it's going to be difficult for them. Ross, what did what did you make of this? Is this is this exciting news? Is this is this a big deal, or is this just you know another another new Revolut feature? I mean, you've got to admire the racing <laughs> new capabilities. Look, I think this is the thing, right? Um, say what you want about you know. Um, delays to filing their um, financial accounts and the high churn when it comes to senior um, senior hires in sort of risk and control um, positions. Nobody does like feature design and launch like Revolut. So I think it's exactly what Amelia says, right? This is, this is them going back to their roots in terms of it being international transfers. So is it exciting? Okay, look, on the face of it, probably not. But I think the thing that we often forget is that, and we forget because we're spoiled here in the UK, right? We've had Revolut and, and Wise and others for a very long time. But international payments is such a challenge for most people. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in the Middle East um, with 11FS and actually a lot of those Middle Eastern countries, as we know, will have a high population of migrants and expats who want to send money back home. And up until recently, the queues at the local Western Union branches on payday were infamous. People waiting hours and hours to make a single payment. Um, 
Saudi's a great example. The local telecom, STC, launched a payments app with integrated um, international payments. And the uptake was just absolutely enormous. And I think expanding access to countries, and I mean, the numbers, Amelia, that you mentioned, you know, 70 million um, in Bangladesh alone to those people, I think really actually is um, really actually is exciting. So I think on the surface, no, but I think when you when you scratch just a little bit beneath it, um, I think this is huge and I'm here for it. I really am. Yeah. And I also find when it, when it comes to international transfers, especially so uh, working in the Middle East, I worked with Ross on those projects or a few of them at least. It definitely feels like it, it is a little bit of a rates game. It's about ease and it's about rates. So like especially in the Middle East, you're charged for trying to change your bank accounts or close your bank accounts in certain situations. And so... I think people are open to trialing new ways to pay for cheaper, especially as a student. I don't really care about the quick and easy service. I just care about the cheapest way to get the money across. I think that the benefit and the drawback of having all these features is with a launch like this and you get front of mind with customers, people will explore something like international transfers. But as you your app gets larger and in the UK, we're, we're starting to see Revolut established as a as a super app but it's still it's a new concept in the UK and in Europe to have a, a fully working financial super app and so I think I worry about discoverability after this point like after they stop talking about this and we stop getting articles from Amelia on it who who will remember that this is the feature that that is is really offering value and I think for Revolut now managing discoverability in an app that's so vast is is going to be interesting moving forwards I'm gonna I'm gonna come at you from a different angle on that one, because I think I think payments systems get adopted when there's a must-have transaction, right? This is the sort of thing that if you have got relatives or friends or connections in Bangladesh or Kenya and you live in you know Estonia or Germany or wherever you live, this is the sort of thing that gets you to download the Revolut app because, as you say, I can save a lot of money. So I'm looking at it and saying, yeah, you're right. I hear you. I hear you on the discoverability, but isn't this exactly the sort of thing that actually might help Revolut get from 35 million users in Europe to 50 million or 60 million? For sure. But what stops someone else from offering that payment service? I think this is the thing. You can't differentiate on that payment service. You can you can absolutely bring users to the table, but can you keep them if someone else offers that? It's a competition piece at that point. And we've seen like I'm fickle. I will go to whoever makes it easiest for me, who makes it cheapest for me. And I think, especially if you're a student, you're pretty squeezed. Or if you, you know, if you're um, working in another country trying to send money back to your family, it's not like you're here to debate on the UX. You're here to be like, what is the cheapest way for me to do this? And I think that's that's what for me it, it will bring customers, but will it keep customers? Like, how do we keep it? How do you make it sticky? I do think you could argue it both ways, though, because you might be fickle, but the next person might be not lazy but not bothered to go look elsewhere yeah. if it's doing the job well enough they're just going to stay there and I think particularly with Revolut say versus a Monzo I know so many people who just at the beginning quote unquote picked one and they've just stuck with it and so again it could go either way you could argue both sides of it but I think that's the flip side I like to think of myself as loyal, not lazy, but you know. <laughs> that's a better word for it. <laughs> but I'd, I'd love to see like how it plays out for, I think it's for specifically for me for transfers because it's about like rates. I think when it comes, like savings accounts rates, 
mortgages, like you'll you'll move for payments, like international transfers. I think it's one of those specific ones. But then again, you're you're so right. Like if you go to Revolut and suddenly you're bought, it's like Apple. Once you're bought into the ecosystem, mm. how do you leave? Like you start using Revolut. Oh, I'll just use it for transfers, and then I'll use it for this other thing. That I think that's the that's the bet they're making here with all of these features. The bet is someone will use this one feature. And then they'll use all the 70 other features we've got and that'll be them. But that's it's a bet at this stage. And I think we're still, I'm yet to see people moving because it's like, oh, it's this diverse set of this one feature and then I discovered these others. It's more like you said, I started with Revolut and I'm now loyal <laughs> to Revolut. <laughs> Unlike their, their and team. I think, Rach, I think that, that, is a useful, that is a useful distinction because we are seeing that play out. Um, Mondo's a great example. You know, you look at... Um, Flex, you look at um, their new investments proposition, they're not necessarily the most competitive price points, but people are using them over competitors because they're already um, they're already sort of stuck into that ecosystem, as you say. So I agree. I think that's an interesting, um, an interesting example. Amelia, I'm curious, um, have you seen any sort of re response or reaction to this from, um, from, from consumers, from competitors? How do you think this this is going down. Do you think anyone's noticed this news? I mean, obviously, you wrote about it when we're talking about it. But do you think do you think it's do you think it's broken through to consumers beyond sort of fintech you know fintech types? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure it has yet, but I also think that while this is serving a very large group of people, it is still a, a niche of people, and so this isn't going to be something that's going to excite the everyday Revolut user necessarily. But for some people, the people that it does help, it's going to be great. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say that I've seen particular excitement from it yet, but that isn't to say that that's not going to come soon from that group of people that is helping and targeting. I imagine if you're a Bangladeshi in Birmingham or a Kenyan in Cologne, you know, <laughs> this is good news, right? Yeah. <laughs> Great alliteration. I think especially like M-Pesa is, I mean, also Bcash, but M-Pesa is just so vast, like such a good, especially if M-Pesa are like making that, hey, by the way, you can transfer from this and like letting people know. I think that's that's almost a route in, in itself mm. because if someone on the other side is saying, hey, by the way, you know, if you're, you can use Revolut, I think that their audience isn't something to be trifled with at all. Exactly, because to me, this is about the network connecting to mm. the network because it's, it's not only is the money in easy at the European end, but the money out at the, the, the African or the Asian end is, is really easy. Sorry, Ross. No, that's almost exactly the point I was going to make. This is the way that frictionless international payments scales when you've got one huge provider partnered with another huge provider partnered with another huge provider. And we can move away from like the centuries old correspondent banking model that just simply doesn't work. It's expensive, it's inefficient, it relies inherently on trust. But if you can, as you say, scale these networks through these types of partnerships, that's game changing. Last word to you, Rachel. Do you think there's maybe people sitting in in Wise or, or Western Union or in a couple of other companies thinking, oh, dang, we just missed a trick? You know what? I think with Wise, Wise specifically are probably, they have already moved away from transfer Wise to Wise. They've seen a bigger game than just in the, in the transfer space. And so I think that there is a group of companies that realized a few years ago it's not enough just to do international transfer. So they've almost done the other, like the opposite side of, um, Revolut where they started with transfers and they're scaling out now. Western Union, not, not so much on the scaling, but I, I don't know. They're, they're so well established for now. It's, it's almost like 
I, I don't know if they would change their model, if it's just one of those things that will slowly um, die out over time. I would hope not because they make it super easy and convenient for people who need that, specifically those branch-based services. Um, but definitely with the on the fintech scene for international transfers, we're already starting to see those moves away from it. Just more competition, more rates, more rates battles, I see. Benjamin, I know you said last word to Rach, but I think one thing that All would right, be Ross. remiss not to call out <laughs> is I, I actually think I actually think this international payment space is becoming more hotly contested. Like just look at HSBC launching Zing. Um, I think this still has a way to run. Um, and actually, maybe it's not exciting, but I think there's um, huge upside and actually still lots of problems to solve for users. I'm very conscious of the patriarchy at the moment after the whole Margot Robbie not getting nominated for an Oscar while um, uh, the chap who played Ken did. I uh, like how it was Margot Robbie and the chap who played Ken. That, no, that's how it should be. That's correct. No, no, that was iconic, Benjamin. More of that. More people need to be like Ken who. All right. From money transfers and Barbie to uh, bank runs. The Financial Stability Board is to recommend measures to control bank runs spurred by social media. The Financial Stability Board is an international body that monitors and makes recommendations about the global financial system, whose membership includes all of the G20 major economies. It is due to bring a report to the next G20 convention in October, recommending changes to current liquidity rules, which help ensure banks' stability during a crisis, such as a run on a bank. The recommendations will highlight the adverse impact of social media on deposit outflows, citing the downfall of Silicon Valley Bank last year. Silicon Valley Bank experienced $42 billion of withdrawals in just 10 hours. The Financial Stability Board, or FSB, will consider the influence of social media to identify vulnerabilities in the current rules and whether changes are necessary. Um, Amelia, that was a pretty shocking bank run, wasn't it, last year? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, boom, so fast. Do you think there's things banks can do to stop social media? I mean, is a journalist to blame for all, all the evil oh, in the gosh. world? Oh, gosh. What a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> um, where to start uh, unpacking that? Um, it, yes, it was It was very fast. Let's start with that. It was it was Im impeccable <laughs> speed, and there were journalists working over time to try and, and cover everything as it happened overnight and all these sorts of things and to try and keep people aware of what was going on i think maybe i'll focus on social media rather than journalists um, um although becomes slightly interchangeable the further along you get or not interchangeable but harder to distinguish perhaps um i think it would be reductive to put it all on social media but i think that it is also very valid to say that there was a big part that they had to play in the speed with which people could communicate what was happening in a way that they maybe couldn't the last time a bank run of that magnitude happened. Um, obviously, bank runs happened before social media was a thing. Um, so, you know, we can't say that that's the only reason, but it's definitely a sort of mass hysteria and fear that social media can perpetuate in ways that nothing else can, really. Um, so I, I don't claim to be an expert on on the subject, so I wouldn't be able to say whether it would have happened without it, but it just sort of accelerates it. I, yeah. I think the run would have happened, wouldn't it? Because yeah. you know, because there were gen some genuine concerns about Silicon Valley Bank's liquidity. Yeah, it was just that the management had kind of no time to react because just bang. Yeah, yeah it ran away from but them. But I'm also like I'm 
Even if we regulate social media, just the way news travels now, it's just the speed of it. There's no way to control it. Like, never mind someone posting on Twitter. It's someone chatting to one person who chats to one person who chats to another person. Like, it it doesn't even, it almost doesn't need to go on Twitter for that, that kind of information to spread. And I think that's just, it's a reality of the time that we're in. I went to, actually, a, a plug for the British Library. They had a great exhibit on the news and how it's evolved. And, and it talked a lot about the spread of information. And I think that... I'm not really sure how you can regulate that. Like, I think you can put controls mm. in from a banking perspective and controls that SVB would probably wouldn't have looked like looked twice at. Like, it's it was not a bad thing for them to have a little bit more regulation. But also, I think that ultimately, if you like, you we said SVB was already on on um, thin ice anyway. It would have happened at some point. It was just accelerated. Could you have regulated that in any way around the information spreading or was it more around how they set up? What do you think, Ross? Um, I think this is absolutely critical. I think we talk about um, regulators in the context of innovation a lot, right? FinTech Insider, and we absolutely should. But let's not forget that at the end of the day, regulators are there to um, manage and essentially eliminate any sort of systemic risk from the financial system and to ultimately give people confidence in the financial system. And regulation absolutely needs to adapt to changing environments. I mean, the the reach of mainstream social media and, and look, just the sheer scale and speed at which information now travels. I mean, that absolutely has to be factored into regulation. If you want to understand the... Um, the scale of um, how social media can influence financial markets, financial systems. Look at what what went on with GameStop. Look at how many people were severely impacted when that share price did eventually um, collapse. I mean, um, I agree that the a bank run on SVB possibly would have happened, and maybe the conditions were ripe. It wouldn't have happened anywhere near as quickly as it happened and probably wouldn't have been as damaging because management would have had time to react and get their arms around the crisis before the the, the bank completely collapsed. And none of this is accounting for the impact of bad actors. I think in social media, I mean, Amelia works for a reputable um, journalistic um, outfit and is held to incredibly high journalistic standards. That's not the case for bot one oh two three four five six on on social media we don't know what is behind them spreading misinformation or fake news about svb or any other bank and so they can't be held to account um so i think absolutely this is something that they should be looking at um i think you yeah. sorry i was you draw an important distinction there though because you can't social media how do we regulate it and that's like that debate is just so ongoing and it in theory, it falls to the platforms who put that information out. So Alt-Fi, they aren't going to necessarily go down a, like a nefarious route. Other platforms that may or may not have one letter wouldn't necessarily do the same level of, of rigor when they're verifying the material that's going out and then potentially going viral. And so I think you're right from a, it is absolutely the job of a regulator, but we've seen the regulators from a broader information standpoint point struggle to regulate these companies and how information is shared and how misinformation is shared, although there's a lot of work around that. And so what I would love to see moving forward is 
both of those things in tandem because I think as much as we can regulate on banks here, really what came, what spurred this on was the pace of the information and and that that's the thing that, in I mean, in this case, it wasn't all wrong, but it's, it's just about how, can you really tell bot 103 to not post the thing or, or otherwise? I think that that's more difficult in considering the private companies that we're working with. I agree with you, Rachel. Look, I'm not um, I'm not sitting here saying all regulators are beyond reproach. I mean, we saw what happened with Buff in, in Germany and how they went after the Financial Times mm. for the exposés that they did into Wirecard. I'm not I'm absolutely I, I completely agree. You know, we need we need controls on both sides. Um so coming back to Silicon Valley Bank, because I, I think that run was inevitable once interest rates started rising and Silicon Valley Bank didn't react to its asset liability mismatch, right? That was a a train wreck in slow motion. You could see it coming, or at least if you were inside Silicon Valley Bank in the management board, you should have seen that coming. It's easy for me to sit here and say that with hindsight, but you know, people, there are reasons why people have banking qualifications, right? There are, you know, you get taught this stuff. Uh, you have to study this stuff. Um, so it was going to happen anyway. So in some, to some extent, social media merely accelerated it. It meant that instead of it taking weeks with people queuing up outside, as people used to do in the 19th century or even the 20th century, boom, it just happened in, you know, in 10 hours. Um, so actually, is the lesson not a lesson for management of banks? You can't hide. If you've got a problem, you need to address it fast, because if, if it gets out, you're toast. This sounds like a threat to banks. Like, I, I, watch I, out! I, I don't think about that. But, uh, but, 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 you know, I think in the past, sometimes, you, you know, management of companies sometimes say, oh, this is bad, this is going to be bad for our brand or bad for our reputation. We'll try and sort of hide it and massage it. But Benjamin, you're exactly right. And I think there's lots of, I think there's lots of learnings for management out of the Silicon Valley bank case. I mean, one being um, their book of clients wasn't in any way diversified. It was all early early stage and sort of later stage tech founders. Um, we all learn even as sort of passive um, retail investors how to manage a portfolio in terms of like diversification of assets and all of that sort of stuff. I think there's any number of um, lessons for management, absolutely on the SVB case. Um, but I expect there will also be um, lessons for regulators and i think this is probably an indication of regulators looking at those lessons and looking at what they can fix to be able to um, better prevent this in the future the interesting thing was this the, the point about looking at changing the liquidity rules because if they think of changing liquidity rules that's only going to mean banks holding more capital which in a sense you know makes the whole industry less efficient because there's you know less efficient deployment of capital so it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, nobody's going to welcome that regulation, but maybe it's necessary or maybe there are other ways to try and address this. I was just going to say, I think sort of education around it is the other sort of side of things. And talking about social media and, you know, you've got bot 102 or whatever, but you've also got people who just are regular people talking about their lives and they might go, I had money in X and this thing happened. Like I had a friend who sent me a really panicked message going, do I need to get my money out of Monzo? Because this one person posted a TikTok where Monzo had shut her account. And so I had to go, you know, no, it's fine. Here are all the regulations that are in place. Here are the reasons it's fine. Here are the reasons why even if they 
did shut your account for some reason, this is what it would mean. And now I'm not saying there's going to be a bank run on Monzo because one girl posted a TikTok about her account being closed. But if there was one and then two and then a whole bunch of people who had that, it's going to cause panic. And if people understand what it means and have the financial education around it, and that's going to subdue some of the panic that things like that can cause and the hysteria that just snowballs as we've talked about. And so I think that's a part of it as well on the flip side. That's a really, really great mm. point. Really important point about educating customers about the how much of their funds are protected and making sure they're aware of the, 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 the processes that are in place to protect customers' funds in these kinds of incidents. Okay, um, we are just going to take a quick pause here and we will be back very shortly. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back. Before we get back into the second half of the news, a quick note to check out our most recent Fintech Insider Insights show. In this episode, we expand on some of the findings in our new Pulse report, which you can access right now on our website, and we'll also put a link in the show notes for you. Kate Moody is joined by 11FS Pulse Head of Product, Joe Colchester, as well as expert guests from Snoop, ClearBank and Chip to discuss personalization in banking. They discuss some of the use cases for personalization, the impact it can have on a bank's product and service offerings, and discuss some examples of personalization done well and badly. So have a listen to that in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this. Now, let's get back into the news. Italy's Objectway has doubled down on the North American wealth market with the acquisition of Nest Wealth. Objectway, the Italian banking asset and wealth management software company, has acquired the Canadian wealth tech Nest Wealth for an undisclosed fee. Objectway will take ownership of Nest Wealth's onboarding, account opening, and financial planning offerings built for banks, custodians, and asset managers. It will also take control of Nest Wealth's client portfolio, which includes some of Canada's largest banks, including the National Bank of Canada. The acquisition of Nest Wealth's tech means Objectway can now increase its expansion plans across North America, Europe, and the Middle East. Um, Rachel, wealth management seems to be an increasingly exciting topic. It was kind of neglected. Everyone was super focused on consumer banking, but wealth seems to be kind of where the action is. Yeah, and if you check out our Pulse report, you will find a whole section on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know, the wealth... I had expected more um, more innovation or disruption in the wealth space over the last five years, and I'm, I'm excited to see start, some of that starting to come out now. I think particularly uh, we were just talking about AI in the break there, and I, I don't want to talk too much about it, but I do think that there is something around the massive data that these customers have or clients have and how just how much value you can drive for them by using some of these new technologies to opt optimize their their portfolio performance because that's essentially it's almost it's like a, it's businesses at this stage and so I think that this sounds like a great move and particularly the growth in North America and the Middle East it's a good ripe space for disruption so it seems like a really exciting move. 
What's your thinking on Ross, on this, Ross? Who who do you think there's an opportunity for here in in the wealth market? Because I always think it's a really interesting market. Because in the states, you have these sort of big brokerages and so on, but elsewhere in the world, you know, there's lots of smaller firms, lots of banks. You know, it's quite a fragmented industry. Um, do you see an exciting opportunity here? I I do. I um I agree with both you, Benjamin, and Rachel, I think this increasingly is going to become a more interesting battleground. I mean, I think if you were to look at like a key objective for, you know, fintech, I think expanding access generally, democratization, but actually really expanding access to really great, intelligent financial services to sort of like gen pop. And I think, you know, that we all know that the traditional wealth management model doesn't scale. It's kind of people and branch heavy. That cost to serve model is very limiting. And so if we can use clever tech, like Rachel said, AI to fundamentally disrupt that cost to serve model, make the, you know, that sort of like that financial advisor in your pocket, make that available to as many people as possible. Well, actually then you're empowering customers with the tools that they need to sort of really sort of like level up, right? I think that's what financial services is all about. We forget that like really what it is, is it's an enabler. Um, and I think this model here for me is like win, 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 right? Like that's the win for the consumer side if we get this right. Um, the win for Nest Wealth is through these big banking partners. They can um, reach much bigger customer bases. And of course, the win for the banks is they can offer better services to those customers that they do serve. So this actually, for me, is is, is really exciting. I think you also hit the nail on the head because I think for asset managers, advisors, the, the technology and capabilities they have to use are so, like, they're so cookie cutter and they're, they're happy to switch platform to just whatever serves the need better. What we're not seeing is exactly what you said there, the intelligent services. We we can do something differently with your data. We can generate richer and more contextual insights and trying to deliver some more of those services moving forwards, that's going to be a more competitive space, not just for clients themselves, but also for the advisors that serve them. Amelia, I'd love to bring you in. It's, it's, it's not every day that we have stories about Italian um, fintechs acquiring Canadian ones. But I, I was struck by the sort of their plans to expand in North America and Europe and the Middle East. Um, does that sound too much, too fast? Do you see sort of software fintechs successfully expanding in multiple geographies simultaneously? Yeah, I mean, I guess the point to make on that is they haven't given a time frame. So... They're, they've got plans for this expansion, not saying that they don't have plans to do it all within 2024, but they've got plans to expand to Middle East, Europe, North America, and obviously with the with the Canadian connection, North America seems like the, the easiest place to go for first. Um, but it, it might be the case that it's it's a slow rollout and a slow progression over over these geographies. And they're saying now, you know, this is what we're aiming for, but that it won't for a while that we see that actually happen. I'd caveat with that, with with their sort of ambitions for expansion. What do you think, Ross? Um, focus on on a few markets first or go for global domination straight away? Um, I think what's perhaps driving this is, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years where um, the access, the ready access to capital that we'd all got so accustomed to in the preceding decade, that's kind of dried up, right? And so that route to scale and, and particularly that route to um, profitability has has become 
so important. So in terms of, you know, profitability, you can probably look at, um, the, 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 the sort of acquisition itself through that lens, we always knew that in this environment, we would see some consolidation, but I can, I can understand that, um, desire to want to get to scale. And so when you look at some of the partners they already have, that proves a model that, um, is viable and that works. And so I can understand that they would want to build on that and, and, and sort of get it out into as many other um, partners and in, in as many other markets as they can. And at least in the short term, they do have that Nest Wealth portfolio in North America. So it feels like, to your point on timings there, Amelia, nail North America first, do really well with the clients they've got expanding out, and then start to think about where to next. And it's not, and to be fair to Object Way, it's not their first acquisition. No. You know, they've, they've acquired businesses in, in, in Belgium and Germany and so on. So they've you know, got a track record of, of, of acquiring businesses. But can get messy when you start to integrate multiple software platforms. Um, okay, well, I think uh, we should probably wish them wish them well on that and keep track of how they do. But you know, Canada is certainly a super interesting market that's often ignored because it's smaller than Amer America, but it's a super interesting market. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that Moody's Analytics is tapping Numerated for automated loan processing. The new partnership with Numerated means Moody's Analytics will optimize its end-to-end -end commercial lending capabilities. Its new lending suite front-end solution will employ digital and dynamic loan applications with pre-filled data, guided workflows, secure document collection, and a communication channel to simplify borrower and lender experiences. Since launching in 2017, Numerated's mission has been to transform the traditionally laborious manual commercial lending process. By harnessing the credit, underwriting and loan capabilities of Moody's with Numerated's platform, Moody's hopes the lending suite will create a faster, easier user experience while reducing back office costs. Um, Amelia, what's your view on lending and lending processes for sort of businesses? And uh, is that an area that needs more innovation, needs improvement? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a, this is an area where AI makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of processes that are quite manual and laborious that AI can do quite easily and quickly. I think the danger is then making sure that there's still a human in the loop and having that uh, an individual or team or whatever still reviewing things um, before they get to the final stage. I think there's a lot of maybe busy work that AI can sort of speed up the process. Um, but there still needs to be a person there who's doing something manual and who's reviewing it and who's making those final checks and okays. Do you agree, Rachel? Can can it can it be too automated? I think there's absolutely there is a there is a reality where it becomes too automated. But at the moment, the the loan process for commercial and particularly small businesses, which is also mm. what this is for, is super manual and also so far from too automated isn't it but it's also it's so error prone like you go through that manual process only to find out there was an error on form to a subsection c and it's just a lot of effort and i think particularly for small businesses they really feel it and i think numerated have been doing this for a long while and it, moody's analytics obviously we all know they 
wealth of data. <laughs> and so I think it's the it's a good opportunity for us to actually drive value for, and I think obviously commercial, I see a, a massive win here, but particularly for small businesses and trying to optimize that process because we know in the UK and Europe and North America, all across, pretty much across the globe, we're, we're only starting to just about see the wins for small businesses when it comes to lending. And this feels like a really important step to offer people who have creditworthiness that that much needed credit that they need to su support their businesses so i think you're sort of saying anything that improves the process is is a win and I, anything to a certain extent i think this is it's definitely it's it's new it's new processes new innovation this has to be taken in the spirit that it is all of these models like any model is tested and refined and so this i don't think this is the be all end all solution but it's an important step to identifying ways to make it better and this is the first time we're seeing this partnership come together what where it comes to and with more iterations of this cycle that's that's where it gets really important but i think too automated is there is there's always a need for humans in this process mm. and i don't think that that ever disappears what what did you think ross i think this is great look i think anything that helps to limit the amount of admin and back office so time and cost um that businesses have to spend on this stuff can only be seen as a good thing i think look i mean this is commercial i think anyone that has ever applied for a mortgage through a bank even on the personal side would look at this and be like this feels good like we should do more of this mm -hmm. um one of the issues here obviously is like single view of customer you know, I mean, this is the problem with banks being completely siloed across different product sets. So you might already have a commercial bank account with this um, provider that you're applying for this loan with, but you got to start from scratch and put all in all of the basic information that actually should already be pre-populated. So where we can pull from those different data sources and make that less laborious and create that single view, I think is great. And just to pick up on Rachel's point about... Um, you know, I think, I think, I think the the, the biggest established banks have to because Rach, you're right. We are only starting to see some some real green shoots of innovation when it comes to credit for small businesses and corporates. Um, but I think it's a rapidly moving space, and I do think those traditional banks have to step up their game because they're actually now at serious risk of being disintermediated, not just by. Um, not just by fintechs that are playing in this space like Alica Bank and Oak North, but also by non-traditional providers, right? Um, EPOS um, terminal providers, um, the supply chain um, mm. finance and all of that sort of stuff. So yes, I agree. It's still relatively nascent, but it's moving very quickly. Yeah. And there's an, there's an article by BusinessWire which talks a little bit more around exactly what they're doing. And it's really simple things like pre-filled forms which sounds like it sounds so silly but for example in a, it, we can all relate to a, a mortgage application or any kind of like lending where you're filling in all of these details and just someone pre-fills it in and then you can say hey this is right or wrong and the beauty of that is one putting power in the hands of the customer or client but also learning from that hey actually this data set wasn't right what how can we refine this going forward so actually the changes they're not like these scary vast changes that we sometimes think of when we come to ai it's just those simple optimizations that can make a real difference and i i think that's what we we in the fintech scene now need to think about is let's not think about 
the metaverse and all of these like grand scale changes that will come but right now there's just ways to improve and fix what we already have and form form feeling like that it's still a thing right now considering all the things the data that we have access to the platforms that we can connect together open finance api technology it's just seems it's almost like yeah Mm. great next come on like more of (laughs) these no, but I think I think that's exactly right. And that's the danger when we start talking and focusing on the technologies themselves. We forget about the fact that actually a lot of these problems are a lot more fundamental, a lot more basic. Yeah, the feature I thought was interesting in the media release was the communication channel to simplify the borrower and lender experiences because often the problem is someone apply, a business applies for a loan, it disappears and you don't know what's happened, right? I'm sure, you know, anybody who's ever a house in many countries around the world listening to this you know you you apply for a mortgage and it goes quiet well the same thing happens to small businesses all around the world they apply for a loan and it goes quiet what's happened Mm. (laughs) and those loans are they're the difference between can i can my business stay afloat can i can i pay my employees can i keep the cash flow going and it's just obviously houses are very important too but it's just it feels like such a big miss right now and just more of these micro changes to make it make it better all right um any final thoughts on on this story just just going back to your point um, Benjamin, because I think it's such a good one. Um, and it's something that's always stuck with me. Um, so Oak North co-founders, um, Rishi and Joel, they started Oak North based on their own um, experience of applying for a small business loan, a relatively small amount um, for their previous company. Uh, the high street uh, banks, I think the average at the time for a yes, from application to getting approved was six months for a no or it was uh, for a no was six months, for a yes was nine months. They ended up going to um, a corporate bank, and the minimum that they were able to get was something t- like 10x the amount that they originally applied for, which they were able to quickly get approved for. But it wasn't it wasn't fit for purpose, and so I think that just serves to illustrate some of the problems in this space at the minute, um, and maybe goes back to the fact that they're a little bit more fundamental and a little bit more basic than we uh, we even really realize. Indeed. Well, best of luck to Moody's and Numerated. Um, there's definitely a need for um, better better solutions. Okay, now for Big Click Energy, a quick look at some of the more clickworthy news this week. Ross, what have you got for us? Yeah, so this one comes from Finextra with a headline: Comic Relief extends relationship with Go Cardless to collect donations year round. So, the charity, founded by Richard Curtis, is extending its partnership with payments company Go Cardless until 2026. They will now be enabled to collect recurring donations all year round. The partnership began in 2019 to support their biannual Red Nose Day campaigns, but eager supporters can now set up regular direct debits. This follows research from Go Cardless indicating that despite the cost of living crisis, 52% of Brits say they would continue donating to charity if there was a fast and easy way to do so. Um, I think this is an amazing um, story. I think that stat of 52%, um, despite the cost of living crisis, that, you know, want an easy way to regularly donate to charity is... um, is a real positive in the current environment. And so this partnership then between Comic Relief and Go Cardless, um, putting that in place and allowing people to do so can only be seen as a good thing. So yeah, good for them. Indeed. Okay, and I have a story uh, from The Verge, which is that Apple 
offers to open up the iPhone NFC payments to third-party providers after an EU investigation. Apple has been under investigation for several years over, allegedly, withholding access to the iPhone's NFC component, thereby preventing competitors to Apple Pay from launching on Apple devices. This is now about to change, as Apple has agreed to give third-party developers access to the NFC chip. The commitment is thought to be in place for 10 years, but if broken, may result in a fine of up to 10% of Apple's worldwide annual turnover. Um, I think this is fantastic news, and I think this um, possibly people are underestimating the importance of this. Um, I've spoken on the podcast before about how Apple has blocked other uh, developers from accessing the NFC chip, and it makes me sound as if I'm anti-Apple. I'm not. Apple's created fantastic experiences for millions and millions of customers all around the world. Apple is a brilliant company, but it is completely anti-competitive to stop other companies accessing the NFC. Of course, you need to make sure it's secure. Um, but blocking it is uh, anti-competitive. So I'm very pleased to see the European Union uh, intervening here, probably 10 years too late, um, but it does give an opportunity finally for uh, other companies to develop better solutions. So, you know, I think for 10 years, Apple has been hampering um, competition in this area and to some extent harming consumers. I'm not saying Apple Pay is not good, it's great, but they've prevented other firms from offering similar experiences to customers like banks, for example. So about time too. Um, and it, but it may be too late for other competitors to really catch up. Okay, now it's time for the and finally section of the show, a look at something a little bit more offbeat from the news this week. Now, normally we have a quite a happy story. This one's uh, not so happy. Um, so there's a, this was reported in The Guardian uh, in the UK. There's a retired teacher whose pension has been stopped because her pension provider has refused to believe that she is not dead. 85-year-old Eileen McGrath had her pension payments stopped four times because her provider, teacher's pensions, believed she was dead. In a repeated administrative blunder, they incorrectly matched her with a deceased person on their system another Eileen McGrath. She received four letters which sort of vaguely requested confirmation of her death in a kind of polite way that you kind of have to express that when you're writing to someone. She repeatedly called them to clarify that she was in fact very much alive and awaiting her pension. Um, but they blocked it anyway, leaving Eileen without income over Christmas. Uh, the error has since been rectified and the payments were made in January. Um, Amelia, um, mistakes happen, but Ouch, how bad is this? Yeah, it's pretty terrible. I mean, this poor woman, as she says in the article, she, you know, it's a bit unpleasant and distressing to be told repeatedly that people think you're dead, um, with, notwithstanding the fact that she didn't get her pension. So it's luckily that she said that, you know, she had enough money in her savings to get to get her through. So that's the sort of the good thing from it. But yeah, this shouldn't be happening. I think that goes without saying. It's just awful. I mean, Rachel, why why do things like this happen, do you think? I don't know. Especially, <laughs> my mum's a teacher and they work so bloody hard and then they get to the end of it only to not have their pension coming through. I, I think if I'm... Was this Cap Gemini? Am I mistaken? No, no. It, was, it was Capita. Capita. I said Cap Gemini. I meant Capita. Sorry, Cap Gemini. Capita. So... They have just been, they're used by 
so many different governmental, linked to governmental processes. For example, they're used for the um, armed forces recruitment to manage like personnel coming in. And the blunders across the board are huge. This, though, is just something completely different because it's it's all well and good that she was able to cover Christmas, but the amount of people who go into financial hardship during those Christmas months without a pension, never mind with a, only having your pension as an income. And so I think that it's just, it's a really, it it's a shocking case. And I think that we really need to think about who we're awarding contracts to when it comes to, when it comes to someone's financial well-being. This is sort of why fintech got created to fix some of the errors in lousy software like this. But, you know, Ross, this is just awful. I mean, is there any excuse for this? No, none. None whatsoever. And they should be ashamed. I'm horrified by this. I really am. I think it actually goes beyond insensitive. I, I genuinely think it's borderline cruel. And I've got a number of um, specific issues. One is that they get in touch with people who have been linked to other deceased people with a letter. The letter asks them to get in touch, but the letter makes no reference to the fact that if they don't get in touch, their pension payments are going to be cut off. Now they say, oh, because we don't want to distress people. Well, I expect is rather more distressing if after 28 days, if you haven't got in touch for whatever reason, maybe you didn't get the letter, that your pension then doesn't come through. And then my other major issue is this lady has got in touch time and again, four times her pensions were paid off, were, were, were stopped. She had to um, follow up, formally complain before her pension payments would then be reinstated. And then this just happened cyclically. It was only after she went to the Guardian that they then, the Department of Education then said it would make, and I quote, an exception and decouple Mrs. McGrath's name from the deceased so that she would not be contacted about it again, which suggests that there was a relatively straightforward technical fix that could have been implemented when she first complained, but that that wasn't implemented and that they've now made an exception because she went to the Guardian and, of course, there's reputational damage and all of that sort of stuff. There's nothing about this for me that um, sort of salvages it in any way. I think it's an awful story. And what, like, what frustrates me the most about stuff like this is, like, it's just on the on the customer side. If you miss a payment, they you will get you. They someone will come for you. They will come for you with interest, with fees. You will be taken to court. Like, it's it's no joke. But when something like this happens, it's like, oh, sorry. Um, here's the money that we owe you, and just the money that we owe you. It's late, but we have nothing else to offer you. And I'm I'm not saying that obviously you can award them anything different like it's not like i can be like oh what by while we're at it like let's get a a little little bit of money on top but it is just like the inconvenience that you go through just for someone to say that they're going to do the thing that they said they were going to do it just it almost doesn't feel fair it's it's very reminiscent of the um, post office computer scandal that's been in the uk headlines for the for the past few months that's been known about for years where in a very similar case you've had another government sponsored technology provider, in this case Fujitsu, which is uh, Japanese-owned, providing lousy, faulty, buggy software that resulted in literally hundreds, 700 sub-postmasters getting prosecuted for fraud, lots of them going to prison, some of them committing suicide, because the assumption is that the sort of customer, the user is wrong, and the system is right. Um, so there is something 
something wrong, isn't there? And it links back to what we were saying about processes being too automated versus not. I mean, these are mm. hardly automated processes, but it's just cl- what we know of technology not being implemented correctly. And this is why it's so important that not only that we keep people around in these jobs, but that we are hiring people that are really digging into it, people who really care, because I think that's what makes the difference. There's someone who works at this like this whatever software it is and they're just like yeah sure the system's working or there's someone who's like yeah you know we're going to do a spot check and we're just going to check the accuracy and we're going to call up customers just to understand how they feel about it and that that's a digital service this is a this is a form and a process but the digital service bit is missing and in in pensions in general it's missing but here it's just it's such a failing like ross said there's just there's no excuse and how they got to four times is crazy like yeah. i don't understand Amelia, let me give you the last word. Is there a is there a positive to take out of this? I mean, Rachel's <laughs> rightly indicted. My mum's a teacher. Is, is there a positive lesson here? Is there is there is a something people can take from this of like how do we avoid this in the future? Well, uh, yeah. I guess the the positive would be that hopefully it never happens again. Like hopefully this having happened and it had been taken to the gardening and, and made public and now that they've been named and shamed for a, for what is truly terrible hopefully it doesn't happen again and hopefully if there's anyone who has gone through the same thing and reads the article realizes that it is worth pushing it and they can get what they need but that feels like a very slim silver lining um to what should never have happened in the first place well i'm going to say a thank you to all the software developers listening to this who write good software and think about the use cases of the customers so thank you to all the great software developers out there because the one or two Poor ones create an awful lot of pain. Right, well, that wraps up this week's FinTech Insider News. Thank you so much um, to today's guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you? Uh, Amelia. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you can find me on X slash Twitter, um, but more more usually on LinkedIn to Amelia Isaacs. Rachel. Um, on LinkedIn, our Amrita Rachel Pandian, or obviously here at LabNFS. And Ross? Uh, on Twitter at RossGallagher07. And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, you can find me on LinkedIn. And thank you to all of you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, please do join the conversation on social media um, or get in touch with us at podcasts at 11 Thank you all so much and goodbye. Goodbye.